Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding paths that lead us around the Delmarva Peninsula. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a previous listener, welcome back. If you're unfamiliar of where Delmarva is, it's on the east coast of the United States and encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Today, I am going to be covering a case that, for one thing, has very limited information, but secondly, will be extremely difficult to hear for some people. It was difficult for me to read about it. Um, The topics that we cover will include child abuse, drug use, suicide, and death. So it's a very, very heavy case, but the victim in this deserves to be remembered because there is very little information about him and the life that he led, and it's like he's been forgotten that No one remembers his name unless they were directly involved with the case or they were part of the family. And we need to hear about what happened to understand what to look for in our children, to understand what to look for in other children so that things like this don't happen again. So that's just a brief introduction. I also want to say that this particular case did not have a lot of newspaper coverage. There was one reporter with the Cape Gazette named Melissa Steele, who pretty much was the only one that I could find that really delved in to the case. But unfortunately, Even when she filed a Freedom of Information Act request, it was denied. This took place about seven and a half years ago. And so I also submitted a Freedom of Information Act request because I was hoping with the investigation being over that they would be able to release information to me, but they were not. So the information regarding exactly what happened is going to come from the newspaper articles that Melissa Steele published in the Cape Gazette. I actually like the Cape Gazette for some of the in-depth reporting that they do. I can sometimes find things in there that I can't find in the larger papers. So I want to give credit where credit is due. And Melissa Steele followed the story through from when it initially happened to doing some follow-up interviews. So with that, there also needs to be an understanding that the information that we have from those articles is based on the perceptions of the people that she is interviewing. That will become a little clearer once I get going into what actually happened. I think these are points that I really need to bring up very early on so that we understand that by not being able to get any police reports 
or documents. We are having to go by testimony of family and neighbors. What I will ask is if you know somebody that is going through something or if you see a child that may need some help, please reach out in any way possible. In the description, I'll leave some links about where you can contact for child abuse reporting, as well as crisis helplines. I'll also ask that if you think that this type of content is helpful in understanding what's going on in our world today, what's going on in this specific case, please share the episode, the podcast. So for one thing, Nathan Lepo is not forgotten. And it really feels like he has been. So this case is very near to my heart. And also the fact that my children were very close to the age at that time. So where does the story of Nathan Lepo begin? For me personally, it began one day in September of 2015, where I remember before leaving the house, that I'd heard that a child died near or in Oak Orchard, Delaware. Oak Orchard is a small unincorporated town. Most people affiliate it with the town of Millsboro. And I would normally ride through it basically when I was heading towards the beaches to go to the outlets or occasionally a farmer's market that they had in the area. And I was actually heading that way that day. Rumors were very, very prevalent. Um, I'm not going to name the store that I heard about a lot, but because they had absolutely nothing to do with this. But there were rumors about a certain store that was in the area. Um, It was really a rumor mill, which is another reason why not having all of the information is hurtful in this case. On the other hand, there's not really a lot to find as far as rumors when you look at news reports, thank goodness. But as far as verbal talking, like, oh, did you hear about? And then, you know, the the rumors spread and things are added or taken away and it really changes the whole narrative. So as I quickly pass through Oak Orchard, because it's really very small. I thought about the little boy and I did wonder what happened, but then it was like the case kind of fell off the grid and, you know, nobody really heard about it. Nathan Lepo was seven years old at this time and his father, Wayne Lepo, had really been the primary parent that had custody through most, if not all of his life. Nathan's mother, Kayla Brown, had been in and out of jail, and at this particular time on September 22nd, 2015, she was in a facility that was just described as out of state. So as this took place in Delaware, it didn't mention if it was in any of the close surrounding states, such as Maryland, New Jersey, maybe Virginia, It just said out of state and she was in jail at the time for drug convictions, theft convictions, as well as violation of probation, 
So she had already had previous charges that she got probation and then broke that probation. So really, Nathan lived with his father, Wayne. Life with Wayne could be a little bit unstable. And when you look at pictures of Nathan, he's so bright-eyed. He's so happy in the pictures that I've seen that it's hard to believe that he had gone through some of the situations at home that he did. The smile that he portrays in those pictures makes you think that he could really accomplish anything, that this, that he was the strong and vibrant young man. One of the pictures that comes up pretty early in a search, if you search his name, he's sitting at a table and eating at, or eating what most seven-year-olds, I would think, consider a perfect meal, chicken nuggets and fries, and what looks like to be honey mustard dipping sauce. This is exactly my son's favorite meal, which I normally tell him he's going to turn into a chicken nugget if he you know, keeps eating them. That's his favorite meal. And so you know, looking at this young boy sitting at the table, eating those nuggets with a smile on his face, it kind of transports you to, you know, this feeling of you know, normalcy. Um, almost peace in what a seven-year-old should have in their life. So when we find out things that were going on, it just makes that picture so much more bittersweet. And you really hope that as he's looking into the camera, that the smile is real, that he's not just putting a smile on to hide everything that's been happening. To find out more about what was going on, um, with Nathan's life, the first person that we hear from, and this is in the second article that Melissa Steele um, published, is his is Nathan's aunt Brianna, Brianna Lepo. Now, she said she spent a lot of time with Nathan. She had sons of her own, and Nathan was pretty much with her when they would do things. You know, it was like, for lack of any better comparison. Like he was another child to her and she would include him in everything. She felt that she could provide a steady home for Nathan and had reached out to, um, I'm just going to call it CPS, Child Protective Services. It has different names in each state, but just to kind of keep things uniform, I'm going to say CPS. Um, and she had asked for placement of Nathan to live with her. Um, so that he could have a steady home environment. So when Wayne Lepo was told that his son could not live with him any longer, Brianna was pretty surprised when she wasn't, or Nathan wasn't placed with her. Um, what had happened and what she heard afterwards is that Wayne and his girlfriend and there were two younger half-siblings in Nathan's life at the time that they had gotten evicted. Wayne himself, so it didn't sound like he went with his girlfriend and the other two children, but Wayne was going to move into a house, which he did. But when a caseworker who had worked with the Lepos in the past, when she checked in, they found that one of the people, the roommates, 
that Wayne was going to have in there was a registered sex offender. So Nathan could not live with his father in that type of environment. And that's completely understandable. So he was told Nathan had to go somewhere else to live. So at that time, Wayne asked that his son be placed with Martha Sexton. And Martha was someone they'd met about a year prior when they first moved into the home. The home was in an area that was filled with row homes and apartments. They were a pretty close community. And how Martha um, Sexton came into the picture is the, the neighborhood itself. They watched out for other people and, you know, they were a community. So early on, there were some observations that they made. Nathan was described as basically just running around the neighborhood. Um, one neighbor recounted an incident when one of the other children, the half-brothers, at around two years old, they found him a couple of blocks away from his home and had to bring him back. So there really was a lack of supervision that was going on within the household. One mother from the neighborhood said that when they first came and lived there, when the Lepos did, that she wouldn't let her children play with Nathan. He had what she considered coarse language and just everything that was going on. She didn't feel comfortable with Nathan playing with her children. However, at some point in time, Wayne's girlfriend asked Martha Steele to help with getting Nathan on the bus each morning. And you know that saying, if you give someone an inch, they take a mile. It seems like that's what was happening here. So Martha did help get Nathan on the bus, but then it, you know, it kind of graduated into, can he spend the night occasionally, which he did. And when they were evicted, the Lepos were evicted from that home, Nathan pretty much picked up his stuff and went over to Martha's. And that's where he was going to stay. He kind of had a routine there anyway. Now from Brianna Lepo, Nathan's aunt's viewpoint, she wanted to know why Nathan would be placed in a home where there was very little room. Martha did have six children, according to the article. However, it did not state whether or not all six of them lived in the home or apartment or if some were adults and had moved out. So we don't really have a clear understanding of how many people total were living in the apartment. But it seemed like it was a good fit for Nathan at that time. However, Brianna, you know, again, was concerned that her nephew was living in a home that was basically an efficiency apartment with very little room for anybody to really have personal space, to have their own room, or even have their own place to sleep. Um, especially if, if there were that many people living in there. So, you know, based on the interview and article that, you know, Brianna gave an interview for, she was upset about the fact that Nathan was allowed to live with someone that they really didn't know. And on top of that, it was in, you know, a very small living space. 
But even if you know Nathan was not placed with Brianna, at least he was out of the tumultuous home life that he had with his father, the girlfriend, and two younger siblings. At one point, Wayne's girlfriend um, had been reported to CPS because she threw a toy lawnmower at Nathan. Now, this was not too long before what happened that we'll be discussing in a few moments happened. So, you know, to have a grown woman throw a toy lawnmower at a child, it's just really, I mean, what would make a grown woman do that is beyond me. But also neighbors reported hearing loud shouting and fighting from within um, the Lepo residence. So at least Nathan was away from all of that. After some paperwork and you no know, settling things, Martha Sexton was appointed as the guardian of Nathan Lepo. Now, Wayne could only have supervised visits. So that's telling me there's kind of some things behind the scenes that maybe it would help understand what was going on because, you know, even if Wayne was living with this sex offender, the fact that he couldn't say, come get Nathan and take him to McDonald's or take him to a park, you know, that makes me wonder what exactly was going on that we don't know about. But every visit had to be supervised. And if Wayne were to ever try to take Nathan, then Melissa would have to contact CPS directly to report that Wayne was trying to take Nathan. Wayne did call his son every night. And in some cases, you would expect that a phone call from a parent would leave a child more comforted. It would kind of take him back to that safe, secure place. However, according to Martha Sexton, whenever Nathan would get off the phone with his father, he was more agitated. Um, She said that it would agitate Nathan once he got off the phone. So sometimes they listened to um, the calls as well. They would have it on speakerphone, um, meaning Martha and a friend that was sometimes over. And Wayne would say things such as, don't get used to living there because you're not going to be there that long. So again, just to emphasize, all of this information is based on not court documentation, but by interviews done for a newspaper article. Now, the morning of September 22nd, Nathan had actually asked Martha to contact a social worker. He wanted to speak with a social worker. So she did text um, the social worker saying that Nathan wanted to speak with her, but they didn't hear back that day. Martha also noticed things were a little bit different with Nathan, such as he would normally procrastinate like most kids do with homework. I mean, what kid really wants to do homework once they get home from school? But on that particular night, he actually, you know, was doing his homework on time, getting it complete. And then he went to take his normal shower. Now, ever since he had lived there, he had asked that for no reason to come into the bathroom. And he was normally in the shower from 30 to 45 minutes. Just what I find interesting in this or 
what I question in some ways. Well, there's a few different things. But one is if there was more than a couple of people living there, 30 to 45 minutes is kind of a long time sometimes not to have access to the bathroom. Considering it was described as an efficiency apartment, it doesn't sound like there would have been more than one bathroom. But, you know, I'm kind of making a supposition here just based on the information that I have. But, you know, Martha was accommodating. She wouldn't go in. And with that, another concern is, did he have an issue when, you know, taking a shower, meaning in the past had people come in on him? That is really, really concerning to me. But again, Martha did follow through with um, what he had asked, except this night she noticed there wasn't the same noise coming from the bathroom. You know, normally you would hear the water running. Um, you know, you would hear somebody moving around, but there was nothing. And she got concerned. When she opened the door, she could not imagine what she came across. She was hoping as she went to the door that maybe Nathan was going to try to scare her. That's something he liked to do. You know, he would jump out at someone. So when she opened the door, she so wanted him to be behind that door ready to scare her. But he wasn't. He was in the shower with the shower hose. So, you know, one of the showers with the long hoses around his neck. So Martha tried to lift him to get him out of that situation, out of that that shower hose around his neck and tried to call and called 911. But Nathan did not make it. This seven-year-old, this very young child had killed himself. And those are words that you would never think would come out of anybody's mouth. That a seven-year-old was to the point that the only way that he saw out was to kill himself. Now you have to wonder, did a seven-year-old really understand what that meant? Well, looking at some of the things that you know, would make more sense after this happened, one of Nathan's friends came forward and said that Nathan had told him that he was going away to a faraway place. By itself, that's not really anything to be concerned about. That's something that, you know, when you think about it, it, he's someone whose father had just moved. You know, his mother was out of state. You know, we don't know when she would be getting out. So that in and of itself was not that concerning. Also, there was a peer behind Martha Sexton's apartment. And Nathan would like to go sit on the pier, you know, and just look up at the stars at night. And... You know, she said one time she saw him staring at the stars and he asked if his mother was looking down at him from the stars. Again, seven years old. He had a history with Child Protective Services. His family was known to them. And he was in this, you know, just turbulent, tumultuous family situation. Shortly after his death, Brianna Lepo set up a GoFundMe to pay for the funeral expenses. Martha expressed, and I'm paraphrasing here, that during Nathan's life, people didn't seem to care about him, that no one had cared about him. 
But now that this had happened, people were just coming out and saying how much they cared for him, basically. So again, looking, there are two different perspectives here, looking at it from Brianna, a relative of Nathan's, and Martha Sexton, a neighbor who, though they only knew a year, had really stepped in and tried to help Nathan. According to the neighbors, um, this coming from the one that would not let her children play with Nathan at first, said that once he started spending time with Melissa, it changed him. He started to use manners. The language that he used got better. So it seems that a lot of people thought his time spent with Martha was a good period of time where he was adjusting better and growing. But Brianna still had questions because she was his aunt. She had spent a lot of time with him and included him with know, family events or family outings with her own children about why he wasn't placed with a family member. Though Wayne had not been interviewed during the article where Brianna was giving information, he did later come out and say that he didn't know that Nathan could have been placed with a family member. No one ever told him that. So for him to stay with Martha Sexton, was convenient. So that just kind of, at least to me, rubbed me the wrong way to say that, you know, the fact that he was going to stay with someone was convenient. Not that it was the best for his son. Not that Wayne took a look at everybody that he knew and determined that Martha was probably the best person for him to stay with. No, it was he chose Martha because it was convenient. So that kind of gives an insight into, and again, here, just my opinion, into how Wayne looked at the placement of his son. Looking at this case really took me down a rabbit hole. Um, In one of the articles, Melissa Steele um, reported that there had been four other child deaths or a total of four child deaths since May of that year, 2015. So I started looking and... I had thought I would maybe include some of those cases here, but I decided to do them separately as they were not cases where a young child committed suicide. Those were cases of abuse or neglect. So I will do them in future episodes, but with Nathan, we have a seven-year-old, seven-year-old that committed suicide. In 2012, so not long before this happened, there was a a report put out from the state of Delaware. It was called the CDNDSC, and Melissa had um, had mentioned that in her article, which is how I found this report and information from this report. So the Child Death, Near Death, and Stillbirth Commission were... They look at different factors in children's death, um, review things that they could have done to prevent a death. There are also things that I found that set forth the guidelines of what this type of panel is supposed to do. Maybe because I'm looking at this and just 
find it so hard to fathom a seven-year-old committing suicide. It Just this one report makes me just wonder, are they trying to make it all pretty? The report is just, there's a picture of a child on every page, which, or almost every page. And yes, you're, we're trying to prevent the death of children. And those are the main, you know, people that are focused in on this particular report. However, it almost feels like it's, like it's fluff. And I'm, again, this is just my opinion because, you know, I'm looking at a case where a seven-year-old who was known to Child Protective Services, that he killed himself, that the only way that he felt he could get peace was to kill himself. And looking at this 2012 report surprised me in the numbers of deaths. Looking at, you know, just total numbers, regardless of age groups, from one to 17 years, there were a total of 40 deaths in 2012. Now, some were natural, you know, children that, you know, may have been fighting an illness. 13 died from natural causes. There were nine in accidents, so these could be anywhere from a car accident, an accidental drowning, um, things like that. Another kind of disheartening one is homicide. There were three, and at least at the time of this report, so remember this is just for one year, all three of those homicide victims, though, were between 15 and 17 years old. Then you have the undetermined category, and there were seven. And six of them were less than one year old, with one between one and four years old. So, you know, theoretically, that could be as well um, SIDS or maybe an illness that they hadn't been able to diagnose. But when we get to suicide for that year, there was one child between 10 and 14 years old and seven between 15 and 17 years old. So there were eight children in that year that died from suicide in 2012. Going forward a few years, and unfortunately, when I clicked on the links within this article, um, I kept getting that the page could not be reached. So unfortunately, I you know, can't look at the um, one of the links under Delaware child abuse. But in 2018, there had been over 20,000 reports of child abuse. The next figure they give is that they investigated over 8,600 reports. So that's about a 12,000 report discrepancy, 12,000 reports compared to the 8,642. Now, possibly some of them were duplicates of you know, multiple family members called in reports, um, as well as maybe some teachers. So yes, some of those could be duplicates. Some could be very, you know, obviously, maybe you know, they didn't really have child abuse. It was just a concern that someone had. But over 20,000 compared to over 8,000, that's still, they did not investigate more reports than they actually investigated. So that's that was the number that really, really stuck out to me. Um, 
and I really can't get over the 12,000 discrepancy. Another report that I came across um, did a little bit of a longer term study of suicide among young children between five and 11 years old. And this study went from 2013 to 2017. And suicide at the time of this report was, quote, the eighth leading cause of death among children aged five to 11 years old. Childhood suicide risk factors included mental health, prior suicidal behavior, trauma, and peer, school, or family-related problems, end quote. So this is a four-year study, and 134 children had committed suicide in that time frame. Most of those were males, 75%. The average age was 10.6. And most of the suicides did take place in the child's home or bedroom, so... Nathan's case, it was a little different, but we also, you know, looked at the fact it was called an efficiency apartment. So possibly he didn't have that ability to be alone except when in the bathroom. But hanging or suffocation was by far 78.4% the mode of the suicide or manner of the suicide. Almost 19% was firearms. And in those cases, They usually found that the gun was not stored away properly, which gave the child easier access to that. But again, 75% were males, which Nathan falls into, and 78.4% by hanging or suffocation. I'm just going to go over a few other statistics that were being looked at in this study. Um, And it does look like they ask questions Um, of what occurred that day and what was going on in the life of the child. And almost a third, 32%, um, during the investigation, they found out that, you know, a lot of times the kids were disciplined at school for something um, or there was some type of disciplinary action, which could have also occurred in the home. So there was something that the child probably felt like he wasn't doing right or, Um, that they were being punished for something unfairly. These are things that could have happened in the home or school on the day that a child committed suicide. Now, given the fact that these are young children, um, it's not really surprising that most of the time the suicide took place in the home. That's where they are most of the time. And in 58.4% of the time of these 5 to 11-year-olds, committing suicide, there was an adult who was home at the time. Now, okay, they're five to 11 years old, but only 58.4% of the time was there an adult in the home. That's just something I question personally. I mean, I understand that there could be situations where, you know, you have to work and babysitters or daycare is really, really expensive. There's no doubt about that. But they were very young children in a home by themselves. One statistic that I find, I don't know, questionable maybe, is that in these cases, 27.1%, there was some type of child abuse either confirmed or suspected. 
And the abuse could have been, you know, not only physically on them, but domestic abuse between their parents. Um, substance abuse can play a part in that as well, because you know, we see it in this particular case that Nathan's mother was away. It also said that one in four of the suicide victims had some type of trauma. Now, this 25%, again, I find that a little questionable. But what I personally feel may be happening is because of the situation that the child is in, they don't feel comfortable enough to necessarily talk to somebody about it. So that one in four might actually be higher. But since the child is not able to bear witness anymore, there's not really a way to confirm then if there had been abuse that wasn't reported. Of those that committed suicide, 78% were receiving, quote, mental health treatment for behavioral and or mood disorders. The child victims often had a history of suicidal ideation or attempts, and some expressed suicide on the day of their death. Coincidentally, findings indicated that children who attempted suicide are up to six times more likely to attempt suicide in adolescence. This study suggests more serious suicidal prevention for younger children, including strategies that differentiate children and adolescents, end quote. So looking at this age group, if a child had committed suicide when they were very young, they were more likely to attempt it again. And those who are part of the behavioral health assessment and behavioral health treatment need to take a look at the differences in the age groups. How you would approach something to a five-year-old is completely different on how you would approach something to a 12-year-old. So these were some suggestions that were put forth. And, you know, again, I'm going to read these verbatim. So one is investing in more effective suicide risk detection and targeted prevention initiatives for younger children. Two, strengthening parent-child relationships as a protective factor through family-based interventions. And three, robust mental health screening and suicide risk assessment. These sound all reasonable. And I think it's awareness that children this young are considering and even attempting suicide. And in many cases, actually succeeding in killing themselves. What sticks out to me here on this is strengthening the parent-child relationships. In Nathan's case, we know that Kayla, his mother, was in jail. So there was not really a way for them to have a steady you know, um, relationship for him to see her. When I discussed earlier about she was in an out-of-state facility, you know, to me, that's important because it makes you wonder if he was able to go visit her, if that would have made a difference or, you know, maybe it would not have. But we don't know because we don't have that background. Jumping forward to 2021 at some other information that you know, came forth between those dates, um, the Centers for Disease Control um, was reporting that suicide attempts and deaths had increased. And in fact, 
suicide was now the eighth leading cause of death in children between five and 11. Now that doesn't really seem to have changed since the study that we just went over. So while that may still be the eighth leading cause of death, the numbers itself are actually increasing. And while we do see that there have been some studies that looked at data that could be analyzed, there really wasn't as much research being done as there could have been being done. I mean, I pulled up, I was able to pull up something from California and it looked at suicides by age group. Now we're looking at Delmarva. Delmarva is by no means anywhere close to being the size of California. And this study though, looked at the age groups between five and 24. In the year of 2020, 54 children between the ages of 5 and 14 committed suicide. 54, 174 between 15 and 19 years old, 299 between 20 and 24 years old, and 500, I'm sorry, 527 was the total. That's one state. And yes, it's bigger than Delmarva, which we're actually looking at, but still, Continuing with the age group that we're looking at here between 5 and 14, um, there was a comparative study between 1995 and 2020. Now, there's been kind of dips and high points throughout this. Um, But in 1995, there were 35 suicides, dropping down to 13 in 2003. But again, it has the peaks and valleys where just the next year, It went up to 25, so almost doubled. And then by 2007, it was down to 13 again. In 2020, there were the 54 deaths that we saw in that age group. So it's trending upwards. And there has to be a way to get in front of this because children are our biggest resource, but they're also the most vulnerable in our community that we all need to keep a hand in and making sure that they're okay. There's the saying, see something, say something. So if you are concerned, contact Child Protective Services. Contact a teacher who may know who to get in contact with if you don't know where to call. More recently, we have heard a lot about how the pandemic has affected young people and their mental health. And while there have been numbers of children that committed suicide during the pandemic, Experts who have reviewed these numbers saw the numbers increasing even before then. According to NBC News, they gave an example of um, an elementary school, so same age group. In 2016, the school actually had a suicide protocol, which is great that even with young children, they had a protocol to try to intervene. And in the first year that one particular person worked there as a counselor. They had used it only a couple of times. But since 2016, looking at this article from 2021, she says she now has at least one student a month from the pre-K through fifth grade age levels that come to her and say that they want to die. And it's picking up on some of the things that they may not necessarily say those words But if you have a six-year-old coming to you and asking you things like what happens after you die, 
um, you know, what exactly is dying, that's a, that's a starting point. That's not something that usually five or six-year-olds um, would say. So we have to be more aware um, in these cases. Look at also self-harm. Um, so not necessarily a suicide attempt, but cutting or doing things that may, you know, may hurt themselves. Look for those things to report. I'm going to a little bit of a higher age group in 2016 to 2019 um, teenagers. There were still a higher rate of those being admitted to the hospital for suicide attempts. However, if we take a look at percentages, if we were to look at it on a graph, the increase for teenagers has gone up by 44%. So it's, it's kind of gone up gradually or slower, but looking at the younger children, you know, six to 12 or five to 11 in those ranges, it's gone up to 115%. So in other words, where in one year you might've seen two children, there could now be five because it's more than doubled. So we as a community, as really caregivers ourselves, you know, if you have a child that's coming over to your home that you have concerns about, like I said, reach out, whether it's to CPS or someone else that you know may be able to help them. It's just unimaginable to me that someone that young sees the only way that he can find peace is to kill himself. We won't know exactly what happened in this case. There's so many things that, you know, we're, we don't have access to. We don't know how much interaction CPS had other than they did have interaction previously. It was even stated that a letter had been sent in regards to the follow-up investigation about the toy lawnmower being thrown at Nathan. They received a letter that day with the outcome of the report. And basically it was saying that bad decisions were made by the adult, but you know, wasn't really to the point of, of taking Nathan away. There were, though, other factors in that where he still wasn't able to live with his father because of the registered sex offender. There's just a couple things that I want to end this with. One is following up on Nathan's mother, Kayla. While trying to find background information on Nathan, I found an obituary four years later after Nathan's death of his mother, Kayla. Nathan was listed as predeceasing her in her obituary, but she got an obituary and Nathan didn't. Nathan had a death notice in the newspaper. There wasn't an obituary that talked about his smile or how much you know he loved playing outside or anything about him. There was one line with his name on it. And we can't go back and change what happened to Nathan and what put him in that position. But even after death, if not for Melissa Steele, there would hardly be anything out there with his name. And by hardly, I mean, there was one little blurb from a local news station that put something on their website. There was one sentence in his mother's obituary. He was only part of that sentence. And then there was a death notice. I went through newspapers.com. I did an internet search. 
I went to archive.org and used the Wayback Machine. That's a way that you can search for past web pages. The only things I found were Melissa Steele's articles, the one from the newspaper, a death notice, the obituary. Now, there may be some things that weren't archived from back then, but in the resources that I normally use, there was nothing, hardly. So Nathan should not be forgotten. I, I think that since we don't have the reports of what exactly happened, we can't really cast dispersions towards anybody involved in the case, whether they be family or the person who took him in, because we don't know what happened. Looking at pictures provided by each of the individuals that um, were interviewed, he looks happy with them. So it could be that both of them really loved and cared and wanted to take care of Nathan. My personal belief, and I have to emphasize that because I'm just trying to protect myself there as well. My personal belief is hearing or thinking about going back and living with his father upset him. There was that instability that children need stability, but he wasn't getting it. The home life with the girlfriend, whose name is not mentioned anywhere, was that a factor? Was Nathan worried about going back to live with her? Again, we don't know, but I think that uncertainty that he would hear sometimes in those phone calls affected him a lot. So I just want Nathan's name to be remembered. I don't want him forgotten because after after knowing what happened, to see so little about him... It makes me both sad and angry. So please don't forget Nathan and don't forget what other children across the communities that we live in and across the nation are going through. Again, I will leave some links to resources, um, you know, whether it's reporting cases of abuse or reaching out for help if you need someone to talk to and keeping an eye out for anything that might be unusual in a child's behavior, you know, as times are changing and just something I'm thinking about now that just came to me is the social media aspect. A lot of five to 11 year olds may not have social media like their teenage um, or preteen counterparts have, but bullying can play a factor. So that's something to look at even as the children get older. But, you know, just keep an eye and ear out for those that may need help and report, you know, to the necessary people. Yeah, I know this was, a, for me at least, it was extremely difficult to talk about suicide in someone so young. But if this helps one person recognize signs or gives somebody a resource, that's why we should be looking at these cases, is to try to prevent things from happening again. So I thank everybody for hanging in there and listening to this um, next episode. I'm probably going to do something more of like a weather related instance um, because the last few episodes have been about crime. So I'm going to I do have um, some things up for more weather related um, incidents. So we'll be looking at that in the next episode. Everybody, I hope you take care and I will be talking to you soon. Bye.